Hey fam, welcome to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I am your host, Dylan Bowman. I appreciate you tuning into the show. Today, we are joined by Rich Lockwood, the 2022 champion of the Run Rabbit Run 100, which happened in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, just a couple weeks ago. Rich lives in Seattle, Washington. And ever since I have lived here in the Northwest, Rich's name has always been one of those names you hear around the local community, a low profile, but super strong local athlete. I met Rich in person at the Y East Tal 100K in July 2021, where he won by a huge margin. And I have been monitoring his evolution ever since. This season has been a bit of a breakout for Rich. He was second to David Laney at the Gorge Waterfalls 100K in the spring. He then won the Tushers 100K in Utah this summer before winning again at Run Rabbit, which was definitely the best result of his career on a big stage. So it was great to get Rich on the pod and learn a little more about his story. In the episode, we talk about his background and experience with sport, his work in the healthcare industry and how that's impacted him. We talk about some formative moments in his improvement as a competitive athlete. We talk about a season, Ron Rabbit, goals for the future, and a lot more. Rich is one of the hottest free agents on the market at the moment, a very good athlete who has a really bright future. And I learned after we recorded that this was his very first podcast. So I hope you enjoy getting to know him a little bit. As always, the Free Trail Podcast is made possible with the support of our presenting sponsor, Speedland, the boutique startup footwear brand from Portland, Oregon, who are making the highest quality trail shoes on the market, founded by industry veterans, Dave Dombrow and Kevin Fallon. Speedland set out to see what was possible when craft and quality were the only considerations. They used only the best materials and technology on the market to create an absolutely amazing shoe. They debuted with the SLPDX last summer. The second model, the SLHSV, is available now. Double boa dials, removable Carbotex carbon plate, Michelin outsole, Dyneema integration in the upper. It is simply the best and most durable shoe I've ever worn. Go get yourself a pair at runspeedland.com. Follow them on Instagram at runspeedland. Finally, if you enjoy the show, consider joining Free Trail Pro. Jump in the Slack. Let me know what you think about the episode. Join our community Zoom calls, use the training plans, listen to the Rest Day podcast. We would love to get to know you and have you part of the team. Learn more at freetrail.com or find the link in the show notes. Thanks everyone for being here. Hope you enjoy the show. Rich Lockwood at long last. Welcome to the Free Trail Podcast, buddy. Good to see you. Hey man, good to see you too. I'm stoked to be on here. Here we go, man. It has been a long time coming. Of course, you are a good friend of our mutual friend, Ryan Thrower, the producer of this podcast, and you have quietly been on a roll making a name for yourself in the sport and it was only a matter of time until we got you on the show and of course you're just coming off a phenomenal victory at run rabbit so i was like man it seems like a good time and of course you and i know this is delayed by one week because my internet connection last week was unreliable so here we are finally making it happen and super happy to have you on the show so maybe first just tell us how you're feeling after run rabbit has it sunk in yet the you know performance you put together there in steamboat a couple of weeks ago 
Yeah. So it's, I think it's like two weeks post now. Um, and I'm starting, I'm just starting to get back to some normal, more normal running this week. Um, but yeah, it's kind of crazy. Still feels a little bit surreal. Um, the, the performance at run rabbit and, uh, there's definitely a little bit involved with it. that's still lingering. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped on how it went down in a lot of ways. It was like something that I've been working towards and it just felt so good. And also, yeah, just surreal. Cause I haven't had a race come together like that well before. Heck yeah, man. Well, we'll go into all the details because I do want to hear the long and the short story of, you know, how you were able to put it together. And from what I've gathered, just from talking to other people who were there and from yours and other people's social media posts, it seems like it wasn't without drama and excitement. So we'll get to that in a little bit, but you are a newer name on the scene. And, you know, for that reason, I think it'll be fun to do a little bit more background and introduce you a little bit more to the audience. You live in Seattle now. Is that where you grew up? Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. First of all, before we get into me, I just want to say thanks for having me on here. Like the host of people that you've had and talented athletes you've had on here is amazing. So I feel like I'm in just like the most amazingly talented company. Um, but yeah, I grew up in Port Townsend, which is a small town on the Olympic Peninsula here in Washington state. And that's uh, the, that's the town where you can take the ferry over to Vancouver Island, right? Uh, so that's Port Angeles, which definitely gets Port confused Angeles. with Port Townsend a ton. Um, it's close. It's yeah, all out there on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, so yeah, it's on the Quimper Peninsula on the Olympic Peninsula. So it's like tucked away. It's like a sailing hippie town. Um, so super awesome place to grow up. Um, did a ton of just like uh, just biking around and there's like an old fort there. So there's a ton of trails and just like these concrete forts that are built into the bluffs in Port Townsend. And so, yeah, just a lot of um, hiking around and scrambling around as, as a kid and a, and a youth over there. Is it on the, the Puget Sound side of the peninsula or is it on the Pacific side? Mm, it's on the Puget Sound. It's like the way that Washington is shaped how it comes over and like right before it dips down into the sound, like right on that tip, it's um, so it's like between the straits or on the North side of it. And then the Puget sound comes off. Yeah. Towards the other side. Sweet. So I know that you're somebody who spend spends a lot of time in the mountains, in the forests. Tell us a little bit about your history with sport, because I think you're sort of a later arrival into the running game, but you know, are somebody who does a lot of skiing and mountain biking. So tell us a little bit about your background with sport. Yeah, for sure. Definitely late to the running game. Um, I grew up mainly just hiking and then like in all through school, through elementary school, middle school and high school, I just played soccer religiously like year round. I never really thought about it as, you know, something I was super competitive in. It was just part of life. All of my friends did it and we just played soccer all the time. So there wasn't really ever any room for me to think about other sports really. And I love soccer so much. Um, but then, yeah, my parents are big skiers. So most of our family trips would be to ski. We'd spend a lot of time skiing all winter long is pretty crazy 
Port Townsend's really tucked away, but there was a ski bus that would take us every weekend during the winter out to Stevens Pass, which is even from Seattle, it's like a two hour drive. So it would be like, wake up at four in the morning, get on a school bus and take the ferry over. It was like a whole day thing, but I loved it. We would do it with all my friends. So lots of skiing and, um, and then, yeah, just soccer all the way up through high school. And even a little bit, I uh, went to community college right after high school and played a little bit there. Um, and then had, I don't know, like a lot of kind of just vagabond years. I dropped out of college and worked seasonal jobs, worked at Stevens Pass, a couple ski resorts, um, and then was just traveling a lot, um, spent a good amount of time, like three months in South America and some time in Central America. Um, and in South America, I stumbled upon rock climbing. And so when I came back to the States at that point in time, I got all in on rock climbing. And, um, at this point I wasn't playing soccer anymore. And I just was climbing like three times a week at the gym every weekend, um, for like three or four years. Um, and then I went back to school. Um, I was bartending and, and back in school for, I had originally gone to get a biology degree. Um, but ended up switching gears. I took some anatomy and physiology classes after I was taking chemistry and biology and realized that um, anatomy and physiology was really more my style. And so um, switched into a healthcare path. Um, and then, um, so it was rock climbing, skiing. And then towards the end of my, my college, I switched to do um, an x-ray path. Um, I thought about nursing and then uh, ultimately decided to become an x-ray tech. So um, went to school. So that's what that. you're doing now. What's that? That's what you're doing now. That's what I'm doing now. Yeah. Mm. Um, talk about, hold on, talk about the like vagabond years a little bit because, <laughs> you know, it's, just, it's certainly something that a, a lot of people you know, kind of dream about doing. And I identify with it to some degree. I mean, working seasonal jobs and being kind of a ski bum and kind of orienting your entire life around outdoor sport and recreation and travel. In what ways was that formative for you? Um, yeah, I, I think as a kid, I, I really loved skiing and snowboarding. And so I had always thought about it heavily. And then when I really wasn't having fun or like much interest at all in school, I kind of just fluidly went into it. Um, and I didn't own a car. I had like no possessions pretty much. And yeah, I think in a way it's cool to just, and I, it's a little bit kind of my personality. I'll just get focused on something and the blinders go on and I'm just like all in on whatever that is. And I was like, I'm just going to ski. And, um, I don't know, there's something about just like jumping into something and not really knowing what the plan is or where you're going to be going from there. And then things just organically happen. Um, and like, yeah, just letting that happen for, and I didn't know at the time it would be a couple of years, you know, you, you say like, Oh, maybe it'll be just a ski season. And then all of a sudden, you know, one thing leads to another and, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely, it was definitely formative and cool to find myself just jumping into situations and being like, 
I don't know if I'm gonna be able to make this work, but I'm going to try as hard as I can. And then, yeah, just jumping from one thing to the next and making so many friendships and having so many amazing experiences with people from all over that I wouldn't have met otherwise um, in the mountains was amazing. So cool. So going back to what you do professionally, I honestly had no idea what it was you did <laughs> until I was listening to Trail Society a couple of weeks ago. And Corinne mentioned that her husband was like bumped into you at the hospital where you guys are both working right now. So maybe tell us a little bit more about what you're doing professionally and, and more generally what it's like working in healthcare where I know there's long hours. I heard that immediately after Run Rabbit, you had to pull like some 30 hour shift. So tell us a little bit more about your professional life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I said, I went to basically like a two year, year round um, technical school to get a degree in radiologic technology, which is to take x-rays. Um, and so when I originally got out of school, um, I had done all of my training during school at the level one trauma center here in Seattle at Harborview, which is the level one trauma center for Washington, Alaska, Montana, and Idaho, which is pretty crazy. I think it covers, yeah, like one of the largest areas for a level one trauma center in the nation. Um, and I worked in the ER there for about a year and a half, um, taking pictures of broken bones, um, having a lot of wild experiences there in the ER. And then an avenue that I hadn't really even known about when I went to school, um, which is another modality that you can work in with a certificate in radiologic technology is called interventional radiology, or they sometimes call it angiography, but it's it's basically imaging blood vessels um, in an operational suite to do minimally invasive life-saving procedures. Um, so I transitioned into that. What type of procedures? I'm curious. Is it sort of blood clot procedures? Yeah. So it's some of that. We cover a really wide range at Harborview, um, but I work with um, the neurosurgeons in, um, stroke setting. So if, mm -hmm. if someone's going in and they have an ischemic stroke, blood clot in their brain, then yeah, we do something called mechanical thrombectomy, which is, yeah, you just use catheters and wires to go up through a femoral artery all the way up into the brain. And then, um, you place, we call a stent retriever, expand a stent, like a temporary stent into the clot, let it sit for five minutes and then you use aspiration, like basically vacuum tubing at the same time to remove the clot from the brain and hope, hopefully, and usually it happens um, in the first try, but obviously these procedures are super complex, but I also work with cardiovascular surgeons to do um, like heart attack. If someone's having a blockage in their heart, then we'll place stents into the heart. And then we also do diagnostic procedures having people come in and we'll just image um, their coronary arteries or their cerebral vasculature um, to see if they have an aneurysm or if there is a blockage that they need to be worked up to have a stent placed at a later date. Um, and then, yeah, I also get to work with vascular surgery, doing peripheral stentings in like legs and arms, or um, I also work with what we call body IR, which is a whole mix of things from placing filters in the inferior vena cava, placing gastrostomy tubes, ports for chemotherapy access, um, 
and then doing pulmonary embolism thrombectomy. It's, it's a whole, a whole wide range of things. You're using a lot of big words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, how has working in that field helped you to appreciate the preciousness of health? Because I imagine that you're confronted with the fact that our health is life's most precious gift. How has that impacted you personally? That's like absolutely right, Dylan. I, yeah, from the moment I started doing my training there at Harborview, it's working at a level one trauma center. There's, it's like the most intense way of realizing how like frail life is and how meaningful it is to have fitness and being able to get out and about. Um, yeah, I'm reminded daily, like how amazing it is to be able to, to just like get out and walk around. But then, yeah, of course, like every day in the mountains running or just running around here. Um, it's yeah, I'm, I'm constantly reminded like how, cause it's not even like just, you know, people getting in a car accident or like some people saying like, they just, you know, we're walking across the street and someone didn't see a stoplight and then they've like broken their pelvis and they can't walk. Um, yeah. it's, it's he, a huge reminder. And I, I never take for granted any, any day that I have for sure. Yeah. I I'm very lucky to have not spent much time in a hospital, but of course we just had our son and it was the first time I had been into a hospital for a long period of time. Yeah. And of course, like it was a, amazing life affirming beautiful situation for us but it had me thinking just like wow most people in this building are here under very different circumstances and you are sort of struck with that realization so kudos to you for what you do but moving on to sort of talking more about your entry to trail running i think this is interesting because obviously you have a diverse athletic background you mentioned that sometimes you find new things and get extremely focused and obsessive about it. So tell us about your entry into the sport and in what ways it captured you. Yeah. So I think I started road running. Um, like I had stopped, I was playing indoor soccer and with school and with working and then trying to rock climb, I was just kind of like, I didn't have time to do it anymore. So then decided I was going to start running just in my neighborhood to stay in shape. And then that quickly spiraled. I think that was like 2012 or 2011 that quickly spiraled into like, Oh, I'm going to do a road marathon and started training for that. And then, so I ran road marathons and I would just do one a year for probably five years. And then, um, at the same time, like simultaneously, I was really into rock climbing. And I had always been big into backpacking, hiking, and then of course, yeah, ski touring. Um, so then I, I can't remember if someone told me about it or if just through signing up for road races, I had stumbled upon trail running and it was kind of like a light bulb moment that I was like, Oh, this is like, I love running and I love the mountains. So this is the perfect like combination of both. So um, I decided I'd sign up for a trail race right when I was graduating from x-ray school. And so, yeah, perfectly coincided. I 
had my my ceremony for the end of school and then like the next weekend i went out and raced it was a rain shadow race here in the northwest on the gorge but on the north side it's called beacon rock and yeah okay yeah i can't on remember hamilton mountain over there on the washington yeah, exactly. side of the gorge it's a yep. gr- that's a great place to run yeah it was awesome. And yeah, it was, I still didn't own a car this time. Um, I bought my first car when I was like 30. Um, but so yeah, I like, well, why is that out of curiosity? Is it an ethical thing or was it just laziness, low budget? I, like a combination of both. Um, I had like found a way to live my life that I didn't really need one. I just biked a ton and then, um, yeah, would just, give my friends gas money if they were driving out to the mountains and I was coming with them. Um, yeah. But, um, so I caught a ride with someone, there was like a carpool portion on the website for the race. I met someone and drove down with her and then, yeah, everyone camped out for the race. And, um, I met a ton of people there. The race went really well. It was absolutely beautiful on Hamilton mountain. It was kind of like a foggy rainy day with not many views, but, um, the trails were amazing and, um, I did pretty well. And then there was like an after party with beers and like bluegrass band and everyone's, it was like just such a polar opposite of what I had experienced, um, when I was road running. I mean, I was kind of in a different place when I was road running and was a little bit more introverted. So I don't know. I, I just like met a ton of people and then ran with them all summer in the mountains. And it was like just a total shift and, it immediately the culture, just, bro. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and it immediately just yeah. grabbed my, again, like just grabbed my focus so much because it was so dynamic and fun. And I went from running one race, one road marathon a year to wanting to, you know, just run like every weekend in the mountains. Heck yeah. So looking back at your early results, though, it hasn't exactly been linear or it wasn't totally successful right away. Like you had a 79th at Chuckanut, you had a 25th at Lake Sonoma, and here you are winning Run <clears throat> Rabbit. Tell us about your attitude in those early days. Were you approaching it competitively or did that come later? Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think I was really approaching it that competitively. Um from the outset. Um, I did well, I think I got like third at beacon rock. And so I was like, Oh, wow, this is way different than running a road marathon where I didn't even, wasn't even thinking about my placing. Um, but yeah, I hadn't come from any kind of running background where I thought I could ever be competitive as like purely from like a, an enjoyment side. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until a little bit later on that I was like, Oh, I think I want to, really dig into this and and try to, um, get better. I also didn't know anything about training <laughs> when I first yeah. started out. So do you remember a specific moment where you thought either, Hey, I actually do have talent for this or conversely, Hey, I actually really like this and I'd like to take it more seriously. Hmm. I don't know about a specific moment. Um, I think like my, I think maybe it was my second year racing or maybe my third year running ultras. I went out and ran a race just here on Vashon Island, rode my bike out, camped at the start line 
and got up the next morning and then yeah, ripped like a, a pretty fast 50 K and won it overall. And it was a, you know, a mom and pop race that wasn't super competitive, but I think just having that like first place win, I was like, Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe I should just try a little bit harder. Cause I've always been like, it's hard to balance skiing and running and climbing. I would always be you know, jumping in between, if there was a good snow day in the winter, I was like, I'm not going to go out and run. I'm going to go ski, which I still kind of do. But, um, I think, yeah, after that, I was like, Oh, I, maybe I should try to just spend a season and really dig in and like, and try to make something happen. Awesome. So also just having peruse your results, it, occurred to me and you can tell me if this is accurate or not that the i'm tough race in 2020 was potentially an important moment for you finishing third behind jason schlarb and dakota jones who are are of course two of the greats certainly of my generation and it seems like it was a great opportunity for you to gain more experience racing against athletes like that and finishing third behind them was potentially a good way for you to say, Hey, I'm not actually that far off these name brand athletes in the sport. Am I touching on something there? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm tough race in 2020. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a pretty astute observation. That's, that's definitely, that definitely made me feel a lot more like, yeah, I, I was on the cusp of something. Um, it was the pandemic year, or like the start of the pandemic year in 2020. So I think, I hadn't really even thought the race was going to happen. And then like maybe a month and a half before they were like, yeah, we're going to put the race on it's going. And so I think it ended up being one of the only, one of the only hundreds that happened that year. And so all of a sudden it went from being this small, like, um, I mean, maybe not small, but like, I think a little bit lesser known of a mountain hundred in McCall, Idaho. And then I looked at the entrance list, like, a month beforehand and it like exploded with a bunch of people that I was like, Oh wow, this is going to be a lot more competitive than I thought. Um, and so, yeah, when I went out there, I was like, Oh, I, I didn't know what would happen and, um, felt good. And yeah, I got to run with like Avery was there. Schlarb was running it. Um, I think Yassine ran it that year. And Dakota was there, of course. Um, there was like a handful of other, I think Ryan Kaiser ran it that year. There was a bunch of people. Um, and so, and yeah, Emily Hoggood ran it that year. Um, so it was really fun to run in like a pack at the start. And then uh I got a little bit too excited and, and ran out off the front up this first mountain. And then Jason ended up passing me at like the marathon mark, and I kind of just chased him. And then Dakota caught up with me and I got to run with Dakota for a good, I don't know, probably 10 miles or 15 miles. And that was a really amazing, uh, thing for me, um, to just like chat with him. And he's just like such uh mellow and like approachable, uh, like really nice guy. He was just going back to school. So we were just chatting a bunch. Um, and then, yeah, they both ended up kind of in the last, there's a big climb at the end. And I think I just kind of had gone out too hot and powered down a little bit. So they both took off towards the end. Um, but yeah, I didn't end up crazy far behind them. 
So yeah, it was a moment where I was like, whoa, that went way better than I thought it would. And these guys are, yeah, more, way more competitive than I would ever put myself in a realm of. So yeah. And way more experienced too. I mean, it, that too. It, yeah. for every, for every athlete, you have to kind of get your ass kicked by the generation before <laughs> you, before you kind of figure it out yourself. I feel like, yeah. you know, and maybe that was what happened to you there and I'm tough. So yeah. <laughs> And now you're coached by Schlarb now. Did that materialize out of I'm tough? It kind of did. Yeah. Cause I think like Emily and he and I were running together um, at the, in the first miles of the race and chatting about the pandemic year and how crazy it had been. And he had just like offhandedly mentioned that since there weren't so many races going on that he was getting into coaching and really, really enjoying it. So then like later on that year, um, towards like December, January, um, I remembered it and I was like, Oh, I'm going to reach out to Jason, see if, see if he's taking on any more athletes. And, and he was really stoked when I emailed him and pumped to do it. So yeah, it's been, that's awesome. Yeah. And just to remind our listening audience, Schlarb has three wins at the run rabbit hundred miler. So three victories to himself and then coached Rich Lockwood to a victory. Also, that's a great story. Yeah. And maybe this is actually just occurring to me too. I mean, as somebody who was newer to the game at that point, that sort of engaging a coach sort of coincided with this kind of massive increase in performance that you've had over the last couple of years. Would you agree with that? Like, do you associate your working with a coach with Jason Coop or Jason Schlarb specifically with sort of the big improvement in performance in addition to obviously gaining more experience as well? Yeah, I I, I think it's both, but yeah, having someone with the kind of experience that Jason has definitely helped me out a lot. I remember like when we had our initial chat where he was just kind of like feeling out what type of athlete I was. And he was asking like what kind of mileage I was running or what kind of workouts I was doing. And, uh, he was like, wow, you really don't run that much. <laughs> he was like, I think if you run a little bit more, you'll have a lot more success. Um, cause I think I was averaging like 35, 40 mile weeks. Um, with a lot of like 15 mile weeks in between when I was like biking <laughs> or climbing or something. So, uh, yeah, I think, yeah, he definitely knows he was like, Oh, there's some talent, but uh, I think if there was a lot more running thrown in and then some really good, like specific workouts that would help out a lot. And then I had a funky season last year, broke my elbow in February. Um, like I think I started working with Jason in January and then at the end of February broke my elbow. And so was out for three months, but it was cool. It coincided with Jason tearing his ACL. So we were like injury buddies for that winter. Um, and so, yeah, I had a weird lead up into that season and was running more, um, and had some good races, ran, uh, won the old Cascadia 50 mile, won the Y East Howl 100K. Um, that's where then, we met. And that's where, yeah. And that's the first time that's I met you and Ryan. Met. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And, uh, but then I got and a then- stress reaction. And so I don't know if it was just from a funky year or if it was from running a lot more. Um, so I took the rest of the season off, just did a bunch of mountain biking and coming into this season, I was a little bit concerned that maybe my body just couldn't run 
that type of mileage per week, but uh, I haven't felt anything this year. Um, and so I think it, maybe there was just a little bit of a calibration, you know, to start working into. Doing yeah. That. But, I mean, it takes, takes a little while to harden the body to these types of races and it's yeah. good to be somebody like you who does have diverse interests and diverse skills in the mountains so that you don't necessarily always have to default to your running shoes, but you can throw the skis on or you can jump on the bicycle as well. So the free trail podcast is brought to you by Boa fit system. You all know Boa, the best lacing system ever invented. You know, the dials you see on every pair of Speedland footwear and on a number of other high quality products in the outdoor and endurance sport marketplace. Boa dials ensure the best possible fit and therefore the best possible performance and experience while you are out ripping on the trails. The LI2 dials are what we use on the Speedlands, which offer incredibly customizable fit. You can tighten and loosen them to very precise increments on the fly, all without tying silly shoelaces. Seriously, it's 2022. Who ties their shoes anymore? Once you go BOA, you never go back. These dials will change your life and make your feet much happier. For those who live in Colorado, we'll be doing a live podcast at the beautiful BOA headquarters in Denver in November. Uh, so stay tuned for more details on that. In the meantime, to learn more about BOA, visit boafit.com. Follow them on Instagram at boafitsystem. Thanks to BOA for their support. The Free Trail Podcast is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. Are you tinkering with your race day nutrition strategy? Are you finding that the nonstop consumption of energy gels and chews leaves you with intense taste fatigue and sugar overdose? Well, I have some advice for you, something I've done for years now. That is, drink your calories. I've tried everything on the market and I am here to tell you that not all drink mixes are created equal. The Gnarly Fuel 2.0 drink mix is by far the best that I've tried for both taste and energy supply. Fuel 2.0 is the bomb, especially the cherry cola flavor. That is my absolute favorite. It's all the carbohydrates, the electrolytes, the amino acids to power you along your trail adventures. Two more things that make it amazing. One, it is NSF certified for sport, so you don't have to worry about unintentionally ingesting any banned substances. And two, they come in both multi-serving bags and single-serving pouches. I typically use the big bag, but in case I use a single-serve stick in a race or a long training run where I need to refill my bottles, the sticks are actually easy to open. It's a miracle. We've all fumbled with drink mix pouches that are impossible to tear open on the run. Is there anything more frustrating? Well, Gnarly somehow solved for that too. So go grab some Fuel 2.0 drink mix at gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for 15% off your purchase. Gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15. Let's talk about this season because it's been definitely kind of a breakout for you. You started the season with us at the Gorge Waterfalls 100K where you yeah, finished second. Yeah, it was that we were so happy to have you. You finished a really strong second place behind David Laney. Um, but you guys sort of had a really great sort of battle for, I don't know, 50 miles of the 100K. And at that point, it was probably like your biggest result, I would say. So maybe kind of reflect on that race at Gorge and 
if it is was similar to that I'm tough experience where, you know, sharing so many miles and so many hours with somebody like Dave Laney, who's got so many great results, so much experience under his belt, like how did that influence, you know, how you saw yourself in the sport and or like, did you learn anything from that performance? Yeah. Uh, Gorge was amazing. You guys put on such a fun race. Uh, and I had been hearing about that race since I first started when I ran Beacon Rock. So was so stoked when Ryan told me that you guys were going to be putting it on. Uh, so I had to be there. Um, but yeah, you know, it was, it was Ryan's idea that we bring the race back to, oh, I don't it? think I've ever fully given him credit for this publicly. We'll tell the full story on the podcast someday, but yes. just a quick shout out to Ryan thrower. I was totally skeptical about the idea of actually being a race director. And now it's like a critical piece of our business and something that makes us extraordinarily happy. So shout out to Ryan thrower. Anyway, tell us about your day, Gorge. That's amazing, man. Yeah. Props to Ryan. Uh, <laughs> We, uh, so yeah, I think it did. Yeah. It was like, I really wanted to run a more competitive race that year. I wanted to run like a couple more competitive races and see where I was at in the mix. Now that I had been running more mileage and yeah, I hadn't even heard of like a progression run before until this past year working with Jason. So there was more fitness there that I wanted to see where I was at. Um, and yeah, ended up running with Laney pretty much all day and yeah, some leapfrogging. Um, and then I don't know if it was just that that course is like so runnable. Um, and I hadn't had an effort that long where I was running the entire time with that kind of intensity, but, um, I was just like basically towards for 50, 45 miles in, I felt like I was kind of hanging on for dear life where, uh, whereas like earlier on, I was like, okay, yeah, I mean, I, I feel good running with David. Um, but then, yeah, it definitely showed that I still had a little bit more to learn. Um, once we got towards the later stages, I was started cramping up and, uh, and he was able to find another gear there, but yeah, running with him and noticing his amount of focus Cause I, I normally tried to chat with people in races and he was a, a man of uh, a couple words when I was out there with him. So seeing his like racing style and noticing like how focused he was noticing when he power hiked and when he ran, um, was super beneficial. Um, and, and then, yeah, you know, I remember you, I remember you asking me about that. Cause I was running with you guys following you with the gimbal on Instagram live. Yeah. And you were out front and Laney was like hiking behind you. And after the race, you're like, so like when he was hiking there, like, do you think I should have been hiking, you know, just kind of trying to learn from the experience, which made me feel like, you know, you definitely have what it takes to sort of, I mean, it, it takes a little while to learn how to run these races. And especially when you're competing against somebody who has so much more experience, there are those just tiny little, even 10 steps breaking into a hike can make a difference in terms of like whether you cramp up or not. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, he was, a, he's a great person to learn from. And, uh, I think the experience for you, you know, probably contributed to the success that you had the rest of the season because you, you've won two races since then. So, um, 
I mean, maybe let's let's move on and talk about those two races quickly. I mean, obviously we'll spend more time on Run Rabbit, but in between Gorge and Run Rabbit, you did the Tushers 100K out in Utah race I've heard is awesome. So maybe you could give us a, a quick little anecdote or two from that race. Uh, tell us how that went. But specifically, what, the thing that I'm curious about is the altitude component for you, because of course you live in Seattle and Tushers is high from what I've heard. Like, I think it goes up to like 11,000 feet and also run rabbit is high goes up to, I think over 10. So if any comments you can make about being a lowlander, I mean, obviously you can train for the vertical from where you live in Seattle, but is there anything that you did that you think maybe helped you with the altitude of those two races? Dude, I can't recommend Tushers enough. That race is seriously amazing. Um, so beautiful. Uh, and yeah, I think after I had made my, uh, my race schedule for the season kind of was kind of was like, Oh dang, I don't, both of these races are at altitude. I'm, and I've never raced at altitude. So I didn't really know how it was going to go. And then we had late snow here in the Northwest in like March, um, we just got crushed with our March and or in like May, April, we just got crushed with snow. So God, it was brutally wet. Spring. Yeah. So I, any plans that I had to go run up at like camp mirror or try to get high on Rainier was like not going to happen. Um, so I had been down to hard rock to pace a friend. Um, so I at least had an idea. I don't think I really, I was only there for two and a half days. Uh, so I don't think there was any real, uh, like acclimatization that happened while I was there, but I at least knew what it would feel like. So I was like, okay, I know that if I'm breathing hard, like that's just how it's going to feel at altitude and Tushers. Yeah. I think def definitely spend a lot of time in the like 10,000, I think Delano peak, which is the high point of the race might even get up to 12. Um, but didn't feel terrible. And yeah, with, with my job, um, and getting time off, it wasn't a thing for either race for me to go out early and spend time up high before racing. So I had talked to Jason about it and a couple other friends and they were like, yeah, if you can't go out four or five days beforehand, then you should just ambush it and just wait until the very last moment <laughs> to go yeah. up high. So that's exactly what I did and just hope for the best at Tushers. And I, you know, I definitely was breathing hard up at altitude, but, um, didn't get any headaches or nausea or anything. And obviously had a good day out there, had fun. Um, and just focused on journey. But it's a massive, this. Okay. Well, I want you to maybe tell us a, a little bit more about that, but just to reinforce for the audience, like it's a massive disadvantage for somebody who lives in Seattle to show up and ambush Tushers and go up to 12,000 feet when you're racing against athletes who live in the mountain West. I cut you off when you were saying you wanted, you focused on drinking a ton, I think is what you said. So anything yeah. that you did, like just lead to help with it. Is one like I've climbed Rainier here that goes up to like 14,000 feet. And I've climbed some higher peaks when I was in Central America. And the thing that I had always done was just anytime I was getting a headache would just try to drink a ton of water. And so going into it, I kind of went with the same thing. I was like, I'm just going to drink as much as I can. And then 
I had heard from friends running at altitude that it's difficult to eat if you're not acclimatized or maybe just in general. And so I was like, I'm just going to eat whenever as much as I can, whenever I can. Um, and I think that helped me out during the race. Sweet. Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, I don't know, maybe gives hope to those folks <laughs> who have high altitude ambitions to, I mean, honestly, man, to see, I mean, also Arlen Glick who finished second at run rabbit lives in Ohio. Yeah. And so, you know, he was, operating likely without the benefit of acclimatization nor the ability to kind of like train in the mountains of course where you live in seattle you have amazing trail running and a lot of vertical but to see both you guys put together such strong performances at run rabbit not coming from that environment i don't know it gives hope i think to a lot of people out there who do want to do those competitive races at altitude and Obviously it is probably a disadvantage, but there are things that you can do like, you know, staying hydrated and feeling well up high to help hopefully mitigate that low blood oxygen saturation situation. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about run rabbit, because this is obviously the biggest race of your career, biggest result of your career. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who want to hear you talk about it before we get to the race itself. Maybe just tell us a little bit about what you and Jason were working on throughout the summer acknowledging that this was sort of the focus of the season. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it definitely, I think is interesting to run a race like Tushers and then run a race like run rabbit. Cause although they're both at altitude, like Tushers was a ton of like power hiking. I had spent a lot of time with the poles during the first part of the summer and then going into run rabbit, um, we shifted gears and I did a bunch more just like speed work, um, uphill tempo work and, and downhill tempo work. So I think that was, yeah, we changed a lot going from Tushers into run rabbit. Um, so yeah, I think that was, that was mainly the big, the big change going into run rabbit was, was working on that. Anything more specific? I mean, just for the audience who I'm sure, would be curious to know a little bit more about the details of training when you say uphill tempos and downhill tempos. Can you give us an example? Yeah. Um, so well, I do some workouts where I'll do maybe five by or six by hill repeats, maybe two minute hill repeats, and then go directly from that, maybe like a few minutes rest and then go directly from that into like flat interval speed work or even a flat tempo. And then leading up towards the race, maybe in the last three, four, three to four weeks before going into a taper did, um, basically like a 25 minute uphill tempo up a climb immediately with no rest into a downhill tempo to however long it would take to get back down the climb. Yeah. Which I love. I had been like, Oh man, oh. I, we haven't done these at all, all season. And I really love them. The, the up downs. Cool. Yeah. Cause you get to so, the top and you're breathing hard. Your legs kind of feel like jelly, but it was good mentally as well to just be like, Oh, you can still run fast downhill while recovering. Yeah. 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 Very cool. Very cool. So I would just want to read a quick excerpt from one of your Instagram captions and ask you to elaborate on it. It's sort of a, a post race post that you put together, just kind of I don't know, expressing, communicating your gratitude and the good feelings that you had after the race. What you said was, 
I've ran a good share of ultras, but this past weekend, things clicked on multiple levels for me mentally and physically. Even after a nasty fall early in the race, I never questioned my reason for being there and the community surrounding this awesome event never let me doubt for a second. So I want to hear you talk about the never questioning part, because I think that's really important. But first, tell us about this fall that you took early in the race where you shattered your phone, because I really want to know what happened there. It was, yeah, it was pretty frustrating. Uh, there's, you know, I was pleasantly surprised that like the race was more mountainous than I thought it was going to be. I had always thought of run rabbit as a, a pretty runnable race, which, which it was, but there was like really cool sections of like boulders to climb over and stuff. But I think the, the most technical downhill is the fish Creek falls downhill, which comes at mile 13 or something you do an out and back and it's yeah definitely the most technical and bit and down towards the bottom there's you're climbing near these waterfalls on just like rock huge rock gardens and boulders and um it had started pouring down rain it was just like a classic colorado not thunderstorm but just like pouring down rain all of a sudden and uh I had been running behind Avery for a while and then had just like taken a high route up on some rocks and he let me pass him. And I, I feel like I maybe had started running too fast on this really technical part and came around a corner and there was a, a family hiking and I jogged over to the side to get around him and must've clipped a toe. I was running too fast and it was one of those falls oh, where no. I don't even know what happened, but I was just like tumbling really fast down the rocks and hit my hit both knees and then um somehow ended up on my back and landed on my back really hard um didn't realize my phone was shattered at that point but i think my phone might have saved my lower back who knows <laughs> uh but i got up from that feeling pretty hurt and kind of just like shuffled off to the side of the trail because there was like a train of 15 dudes behind me and let them all pass. It was kind of like, oh, oh, no. man, mile six. You tomahawked in front of all the competition. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <no>. exactly. <laughs> it was it was a full on Superman to yeah to like somersault down the rocks. Um, so yeah, I was pretty shooken up. And luckily, there's an aid station like a mile later, and they I cut my finger and had just like grit and gravel all over me, and they helped clean me up and bandage up my finger, but running out of that aid station, my knees felt pretty awful. Um, yeah. and so kind of just said to myself, I was like, you know what? I've fallen before. I'll just give it 10 miles and it'll probably work itself out. And so, kept- so talk about this because obviously the opposite could have happened, right? Like, I don't think it's necessarily natural for everybody to keep a good attitude in that situation when something terrible and unexpected happens early in a hundred mile race. And again, like I mentioned in this excerpt from your Instagram, you mentioned that you never question for a second. Do you, can you put your finger on why that is? I think just, just knowing the, all of the work from the season that went into it and how badly I wanted to be there and how stoked I was to run that race. I just like, yeah, just never really even gave myself the option of bowing out. 
obviously I was, you know, going, like I said, I'll give myself 10 miles, but, um, and if things were feeling like acutely injured, or if I really like felt like I was doing some damage, I probably would have pulled out, but I think, yeah, just, yeah. Knowing the hard work that I put in also, I was supposed to run, run rabbit, uh, in 2021, but with my stress reaction had to bow out of it. So I was really like committed to, to finishing the race. Awesome. So you also mentioned that things just kind of clicked for you. Can you identify what contributed to that? Was it a mixture between being happy to be there, fitness, psychology? What do you think it was that led to things clicking so well? I think a really good mix of, yeah, of all of that. Like, I think being way more fit than I had ever been before to run a hundred really like, aside from my injury from falling, like I felt just really great. And then, so with that, like I was just, yeah, just so happy to be out there. And so, yeah, things felt way less of like a grind, um, and, and more of just, yeah, like really fluid. So sweet. Yeah. So give us some more details about the competition because at some point you and Avery kind of separated from the rest of the pack. I think ran together through maybe halfway. And then eventually like the critical separation happened. And maybe you could bring us into that moment too, because I think for somebody like you, it's a fairly profound moment in your entire career, not necessarily just in this race, right? Because you're breaking away from the pack at a competitive hundred mile race. You're somebody who's like definitely on the upswing in your career. And there's kind of two ways you could go, you know, kind of rise to that occasion and deliver a victory as you did, or, you know, maybe panic and choke, choke it away. So maybe tell us about the moment where you pulled away from Avery, what was going through your head and and how were you able to sort of meet that moment with composure? Yeah, it was, um, definitely a really, really intensely emotional moment. Um, it was interesting because I didn't really actually end up spending that much time running. Like I had run with Avery up until I fell and then he had pulled away probably five, eight minutes from the pack. And I had run with Arlen up through the high country and then through, and I hadn't seen Avery at all since mile 16 at this point. So I ran with Arlen for like maybe four or five miles up through like 50 K. Um, and then Arlen took a break. There's like this 15 mile long downhill. It's insane. Uh, it's on mountain bike road one. It's on mountain okay. bike trails. Yeah. Um, but they just switch back for so, and you're just, yeah, it was just crazy. You're going downhill for so long and then into town and Avery was still ahead. This was at mile like 50. Um, and, uh, going up and you do another little figure eight on the other side of town. And he was still way ahead of me. My knee had started hurting a lot more on that uphill. I was like it, I think it had started swell, swelling at that point. Um, so it was getting a little bit more difficult to bend on downhills. Um, so I was still like focused and in it, but thinking a little bit like, oh, he's probably putting some time on me. Um, 
but I had also uh, like a friend of mine, Emily Hoggood had said before the race, I was chatting with her and she was like, just remember in a hundred miles, like as bad as you're feeling at points, like people are feeling just as bad or maybe worse. Um, and it's always so hard to remember. Isn't I it? know it is. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're just like, Oh, I'm dogging it right now. Like they're probably <laughs> running away. And I had kind of been thinking that a little bit coming down that hill. Uh, there's like a six mile downhill back into the aid station, which would be like mile 63 when you come back into that aid station. And so Avery was still, I figured eight, 10 minutes ahead of me. And then you come off the mountain bike trail and you run like a quarter mile on this gravel road into the aid station. And my headlamp caught like his shirt. And I was like, Avery's right there. Like, holy moly. I had thought he was putting time on me. And then he was right there. And that was like a moment in, in my mind where it just, I was like, let's go. I was yeah. like, like immediately started feeling a lot better. And, um, I think he stopped to do a little bit longer of a transition with his crew and, uh, my buddy Rob was there crewing me and I just grabbed a vest from him and then was like, let's just go. Um, and my, in my head on the way down, I had been like, my knee was hurting a little bit on the downhills. And I was like, I'm just going to run this entire uphill. Hopefully my knee feels better on the uphill. And it ended up feeling a lot better and, um, running out of that aid fast and, and then just all the way back up into the high country, just tried to run almost every step and, I, I guess ended up putting some time on, on the pack in that moment. That is so cool, man. And it's something that I stress all the time when I'm doing commentary for live streams is how critical those aid stations can be at the front of the race and how often it is that that's where the separation happens. Like if two guys or, you know, two women come in at the same time, sometimes the one who's feeling better can get out more quickly. And that's like the adrenaline and the juice that they need to actually break the elastic leaving that aid station. It sounds like that's what happened for you guys. Yeah, it, it must've been. Cause yeah, I, I got super pumped up in that moment and it was like, through like 63 miles and it was like going into like the true night of the race. So yeah, I think it was a, a catalyst and like a, a tough moment to really like try to yeah. accelerate things. So ultimately you had more than an hour gap when you reached the finish line. So give us any other highlights or lowlights from emerging into the night alone <laughs> in the lead of run rabbit and more specifically arriving at the finish line winning, you know, what was absolutely, you know, your biggest, best performance of your career and something that really puts your name on the map in a much more significant way in the national international ultra running world. Um, yeah, it's a, it's interesting the way they do run rabbit. Cause yeah, I, I pulled ahead and then you have like a really long climb back into the high country, but the, um, the tortoise race for run rabbit starts four hours ahead of the hares race. So the whole yes. time you're still like catching people and like chatting with people about their race. And also like on the climbs, you're looking back below you and you're like, Oh, there's like four headlamps below me. Who knows who they are? Um, yeah. so that was really interesting. Um, uh, but it's the same way at Tushers, they run like a 70 K. And so I kind of like that, that you're, you're able to still like 
you know, you're not just running all by yourself for the rest of the race. I mean, I you, you can never just take your foot off the gas and you, you always have to be wary of whose headlamps are behind you sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> whose headlamps are behind me, but then also, yeah, like, just like, you know, having that carrot to be like, Oh, there's someone ahead of me. Like I'm going to run I'll catch them, um, throughout like a lot of the high country, but then, yeah, a lot of time and on I my bet own. You're exchanging good jobs the whole way, you know, yeah, giving each yeah. other kudos. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a good way to stay inspired. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, they also don't allow pacers at run rabbit. So that was also like a nice thing to have some more people out there. Cause yeah, you got no one with you for the rest of the night. And, um, yeah, ran the continental divide section up there in the high country. Once you get to mile 75 or something like that is really, really cool. Um, and there was like, there wasn't a thunderstorm going on, but every once in a while, like lightning would just strike in the distance which was really, really beautiful too, to just like right. running in darkness. And then just every once in a while, you just see a flash. Um, but then, yeah, ultimately going up into the last aid station at the top of Mount Warner, maybe like six miles before that, it just socked back in with fog where you couldn't see more than like 15 feet in front of you. Started raining again. I was like, oh man, like, I thought we were through the, the crux of the weather because there had been hail earlier on in the day. Um, so that made things difficult. I still had no idea where anyone was behind me. Um, so really, I you it. weren't, I was, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. I, I kind of just like made it, it like, I don't, I try not to ask people. I don't think anyone knew either. I don't, I don't think they were updating up where like, yeah. um, it's Carl a pretty Hall. remote area. You don't see yeah. a crew at all either. So yep. any information you get would probably be unreliable anyway. <laughs> so it's better not to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, I was just running and, uh, got up to the top of Mount Warner. The fog was so thick. And they were like, do you need anything? And I was like, I think I'm good on water. Like, I just don't want to get caught. I'm ready to just bomb this downhill. Um, and I literally, they were like, okay, you just go down the road. And I was literally like, where is the road? The fog was so dense. And the <laughs> aid station worker had to basically like hold my hand and like walk me over and be like, this is where the road is. <laughs> so at that point I took my headlamp off my head and held it down low. And that helped out a ton because when you have it on your head, no it like blacks the light and it just like, you can't see yeah. anything. So I held it down low and that helped. Um, but then it's just a bomber, like six mile down service down. road. Yeah, yeah. Like not too steep where it like hurts to run fast and like not very rocky. So it was, a. I had gone you into it thinking it would be just a, enjoy the, the trip down the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, was pumped and feeling like I could run sub 18 hours. So I was kind of like pushing myself a little bit on the downhill. Unfortunately, like a mile from the finish, I got lost, <laughs> which is a nightmare scenario. Um, went through like a construction site Jeez. and got lost for like a minute, but then found my way. Um, but then, yeah, you run, run back down to the bottom of the ski hill and I had heard things from people kind of forgotten about it, but they start a 50 mile race that morning at 6am. And so I turned the corner to head into the finishing shoot 
And there was just a sea of headlamps running at me. And I was like, holy moly. It was like a 50 mile start was like coming at me and I was running against the grain. Um, once I was like not startled anymore and everyone saw what my bib was, it was like a pretty special moment. Everyone was like, yeah, started. Che- everyone was cheering as they were like running past. Starting oh, that's so race. Cool. It was amazing. Um, oh. And then, yeah, past into the finishing shoot and uh, yeah, hugged my crew and hugged the race director. Um, I think his name is Paul. And uh, it, yeah, it all kind of started flooding in of just like the whole, the whole thing still, it felt very surreal for a long time. Um, and then I asked, I was like, Oh, how, how far back are Arlen and Avery or whoever is in the, you know, in second. And they were like, I think you got like 40 minute gap. And that just blew me away. I would have had, I figured people were hot on my heels. It was crazy. with a little bit of perspective, are there any profound lessons from this awesome performance that you hope to take forward with you? You know, because this is a huge thing to kind of hang your hat on and is another great piece of experience in your, you know, now Rolodex of ultra running finishes and something that you can build upon. You know, it can be the foundation of the future of Rich Lockwood's career. So, any uh any other sort of like big takeaways or lessons from run rabbit i try to think about that kind of thing right after the race like while it's fresh um and i think just um i did the best job i ever had of just maintaining positivity the whole way through and that really helped with like not you know slogging out any miles just walking up any hills or anything i was like like just maintain super motivation through the whole thing. So I'll definitely take that with me um, to just like try to just stay in that moment and not think about, you know, for any other race, like who's ahead of me or who's behind me, like just stay in my moment and be like, just keep pushing. um, Even if it's hurting, like keep pushing. Um, I did a lot of like on some uphills would do, um, intervals of like 30 seconds on running and then like 30 seconds, like just power hiking fast through some of those. So, um, I like that. I think all that I'll take that with me Mm. as well. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard anybody like actually regiment it like that in a race situation. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why I just started doing it like that. Um, but it gives me something to focus on and it it keeps me motivated to get back into a run again. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. Run rabbit didn't have any huge, like really long prolonged uphills, but it had some, um, yeah, I think those... so. You were able to maintain the positivity even while you were ragdolling down Fish Creek <laughs> Falls at mile thirteen and hundred mile race. It's yeah, awesome, I... man! <laughs> Congratulations! So, very serious question for you now: How much of the victory do you attribute to wearing free trail arm sleeves? <laughs> I had never <laughs> worn arm sleeves before in my life. And I think I'm an arm sleeves guy now, dude. <laughs> dude, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. 
Yeah, I take yeah. full credit for your victory there. So. <laughs> As you should. Don't As worry should. about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ryan Rower was clutch. I like I talked to Jason a week before the race and he was like, dude, arm sleeves for it. The race will be great. And so I was like, I've never worn them. I don't own them. And uh I reached out to Ryan and he was like, Oh yeah, I've got something. Yeah. And gave me yeah, he was like, Rich Lockwood needs arms, arm sleeves. Uh, we got to get him some. I was like, yeah, no, no brainer. <laughs> um, very cool, man. Yeah, very, very cool. And um, just an awesome, I mean, as I've said publicly a number of times, like, I don't know, like people think very highly of you in Seattle, but you sort of fly under the radar. And this is just a massive breakthrough for you, I think. And I think the sky's the limit. And I want to ask you about what's next sort of to close, but maybe before we get to that one final question, man, you've made some money this year racing. It just like it occurred to me while I was thinking about what we should talk about that. Like, you know, you made just two, two grand at, at Gorge Waterfalls, but I think you made 15 grand at, at run rabbit. And so you probably have made more prize money than any trail runner in the world this year and in, in two performances. Um, I don't know. I mean, not to put you on the spot or anything like that, but like, uh, I don't know. It's a, I think, a a good new, I guess, evolution of the sport. I mean, run rabbit has always been committed towards, you know, professionalizing the sport and compensating the winners and podium finishers and beyond the masters athletes and people like that. Um, is there anything you want to say about just like, I don't know what it means to you to actually earn some money off these performances? Obviously it's not why you do it, but I figured it might be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, yeah, I, I think, like you said, it's, it's not why you do it. Um, I didn't sign up for gorge or for run rabbit being like, I'm after the money. Uh, it just, so, you know, it's like races that are competitive, sometimes end up having prize money. Um, so it's, it's definitely like a nice, a nice bonus. Um, but I think, yeah, my goal was to run competitive races and that, and then also wanted to get a hard rock and Western qualifier and run rabbit fit that as well. Um, but I think, uh, especially for run rabbit, it's a really interesting, like, I think people do, go out running strong and there's everyone like a lot of people in the front like I had never run in a front pack of like 25 dudes all running like within a minute of each other uh so I think yeah not going after the the prize money but it, it makes a race a lot more interesting um and then yeah I think winning a race against some people that I don't think I'd hadn't put myself up there being able to beat them. Um, the prize money just elevates that, um, in my mind of being like, okay, maybe, maybe I am onto something. Maybe I, maybe I want to pursue this more. Yeah. Yeah. And as a unsponsored athlete too, it makes a big difference. You know, you're racing as guys who are actually paid to be runners. So, you know, it's, I I think, uh, a great, uh, sort of capstone to your season or, you know, uh, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for a, uh, a fair compensation or a fair representation of, uh, you know, the value that you bring to the sport as an athlete is, uh, you know, kind of what you earned here in, uh, these couple of races. So congratulations to you on that. So maybe let's close by just talking about 
what's next for you again, you know, this was a breakthrough for you. I'm sure it in some way kind of changes the way you think about the future, think about your place within the greater ultra running ecosystem, the goals that you might be setting for yourself. It was a hard rock in a Western States qualifier. So I'm assuming you're putting your name in those two lotteries. What else has you inspired as an athlete say over the next three years? Uh, yeah. So I think I'd like to invest a little bit of the, the prize money from the race into trying to get out and race internationally. That's what's really exciting me right now. Um, my wife and I had the, um, had an awesome honeymoon trip this summer out to in, uh, in like early July, we went out to the Alps, went to Chamonix and then also spent some time in the Dolomites and it definitely blew my mind and got me really excited to try to, to try to get out and race internationally. So, um, I've thrown my name in for trans Grand Canaria, which I've talked to, uh, Pacific Northwest crusher, Caitlin Gerben about, and she highly recommended it. Um, so that's on my list for this coming year. And, um, and then, yeah, I've got some other things in the works, but, um, with, with my work, I'm still trying to figure out time off because yeah, come going to race at the gorge versus going to race, you know, internationally is, is a lot different of a, a time commitment. So I'm going to have to balance some things out, but, um, definitely really stoked to, to try to get out and, and see, you know, stack myself up nationally here. And then to, to see how I stack up internationally too, is really exciting. Oh yeah, dude. I love it. And yeah, I think it is the natural progression for an athlete like you to now go over to Europe and do one of those big races, learn a little bit more, gain that experience sort of as an analog to what we talked about earlier from I'm tough when you raced against Jason and Dakota and then Laney. Now you go again, go over to Europe and race against some of those great champions. It's only going to help you grow as an athlete. And I also love what you said about investing what you made in these races in your own career. Like what a great way to wind down a great conversation. I think that's just a beautiful point, you know, investing in yourself, investing in your own career and having trust that that investment will pay dividends, whether in the form of hopefully, you know, a, a great sponsorship, but more importantly, in great experiences and uh, other great performances and uh, great memories that you gain in this amazing sport. So Rich Lockwood, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, buddy. It's great to chat with you. Thank you again so much for having me, man. It's been awesome. Thank you, Rich. What a great guy. Make sure you go follow Rich on Instagram. He is criminally underfollowed and he's just getting started in his career. So you're going to want to follow the journey. I have a link to his profile in the show notes. Free Trail Pro members, jump in the Slack. Let me know what your favorite part of the conversation was. What questions did I miss? Who else do you want to see on the pod in the future? Let us know 
in the Free Trail Pod Slack channel. Big thanks to our sponsors, Speedland, best shoes ever made, runspeedland.com, grab a pair of the SLHSV, Boa Fit System, the best lacing technology on the planet, the dials that are on every pair of Speedland shoes. Big thank you to Boa for their support of the show. Gnarly Nutrition, of course, best nutrition supplements on the market, gonarly.com, use code FREETRAIL15. Okay, that's it. Thank you all for listening. Love you dearly. Talk soon. Bye-bye.